Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we offer the first part of a public lecture delivered by CBHD Executive Director Paige Comstock Cunningham, JDMA. The lecture was hosted by CBHD in March 2011 on the Deerfield campus of Trinity International University. The lecture was entitled, Baby Making, The Fractured Fulfillment of Huxley's Brave New World. An adaptation of this lecture appeared in the spring and summer 2011 issues of Dignitas, CBHD's quarterly publication. And now, let's set the stage. When it was released in 1997, Gattaca was a science fiction thriller, a story of a world where the genetically engineered elite have exclusive rights to space travel and the naturally conceived invalids perform the routine menial tasks to serve and pamper the elite. Vincent, conceived the old-fashioned way in the back of a Chevy, was short and had astigmatism and a weak heart. Saw his parents, Marie and Antonio, determined not to repeat that mistake, instead opting to give their next child every possible advantage. They also reserved Antonio's name for their soon-to-be nearly perfect son. Their in vitro fertilization or IVF procedure yielded four healthy embryos, two boys and two girls. The scene at the eighth day center where they were presented with their options hints at the mingled anticipation and distress that is not too far from what parents experience today. We'll return to that scene in a moment. Gattaca is just one of the examples of literature and popular culture that entice us to slow down and think about some of the most serious ethical questions facing us today. Hollywood has given us the sixth day on human cloning, the island on involuntary organ donors, John Q on organ transplantation, and Minority Report on neuroethics, to name just a few, and of course, the soon-to-be-released Limitless on cognitive enhancement. These are joined in literature by works such as C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, and of course, Alchemist Huxley's Brave New World. Sometimes there is an eerie immediacy to the science fiction futuristic scenarios depicted in these works. Scripts have had to be altered when real-day science threatened to overtake the in-the-future premise of the script. Meanwhile, the moral conversation, the bioethical reflection, has struggled to keep up. Law and policy lag even farther behind, often feebly attempting to regulate only after a catastrophe or a dispute. Let me suggest that even further back in the field is the church. By church, I'm referring to the people in the pew, people who actually make the decisions about the use of medicine and technology. Often they have no moral guidance or don't even realize there is a moral question to be answered. This evening, I'm going to explore just one of the areas where serious moral questions need to be answered, assisted reproductive technologies, or ART for short. It's also an area that raises some of the most profound questions that human beings are invited to answer. The meaning of marriage, children, and family. The meaning of human dignity and human flourishing. Issues of disability and discrimination, planning, and control. Let me pause and offer a disclaimer. I am going to be talking about sensitive issues such as contraception and infertility. Please hear me on this. I'm not criticizing birth control. That's a separate discussion. Also, the issue of infertility is a painful one, and it has probably touched all of us in some way. 
I do not want to seem sensitive to that at all. And as a mother of three, I would presume to speak for infertile couples. Infertility is also grounds for a separate discussion. But infertility is implicated in what I'm going to discuss. And by necessity, I will be addressing assisted reproductive technologies, which some of you may have considered or utilized. I have friends whose children were conceived by means of IVF. But once conceived, the questions about the circumstances of a child's origins are irrelevant to his or her moral status. Each one is a precious, unique individual made in the image of God. Finally, I'm going to have to discuss in a public way things that, procedures and things that used to be reserved for the privacy of the doctor's office or the bedroom. Gavin's storyline is the upending of the genetically perfected expectations of Vincent's brother, Anton. Anton is unable to match up to his potential, and he's beat by his older brother in a swimming race twice. Vincent, meanwhile, assumes the identity of Jerome, a silver medalist swimmer who is paralyzed in a suicide attempt after he failed to get the gold. When both, or both Anton and the original Jerome fail, Vincent, the invalid, succeeds. Gatka's subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, reminds us of the burden of giftedness. The genetically rich bear the burden of parental, personal, and cultural expectations of them. So let's return to the scene in the Eighth Day Center. Marie and Antonio are informed that all four embryos are healthy, with no predisposition for major diseases, such as the heart disease that threatened to end Vincent's life by the age of 30. They encountered several decision points. First, they chose the gender of boys so that Vincent could have a brother. They asked for specific hair, eye, and skin color. They wanted him to be heterosexual so they could have grandchildren. Next, when the doctor offered mathematic or musical enhancement, Marie jumped the chance. Oh, Anton, the choir. The only thing holding them back was the cost. Once they started down that path of their assisted reproduction project, the only barrier was financial. Despite their desire to keep some semblance of natural conception by leaving a few traits to chance, the doctor genetically engineered the embryos to pick simply the best of you. Before they knew it, they were complicit in the destruction of 75% of the embryos they commissioned. Marie's final question, what will happen to the others, highlights the reality of IVF and the moral status of the embryo. Although perfectly healthy, they were, after all, only merely human possibilities. We are left with the implication that they will be destroyed. Gattaca is simply a more sophisticated refinement based on advances in technology the reproductive model we are introduced to in Brave New World. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is frequently paired with George Orwell's 1984. The contrast is painted in dichotomous terms, Huxley's seeming utopia providing a coping alternative to Orwell's dark dystopia. During the World War II era and the Cold War which ensued, critics chose Orwell's scathing parable of totalitarian control as the more accurate. When threats of the Red Scare subsided and the soothing technology of personal choice and comfort exploded, Huxley's drug-induced happiness resurged as uncomfortably prophetic. Tonight, I'm suggesting that both Huxley and Orwell were right. Huxley captured the spirit of the biotechnological age, and Orwell painted the grim underbelly of totalitarian opportunism and control. 
David Rogers' stage version of Brave New World tersely highlights the stark realities of a world of controlled reproduction. In this world, there is guaranteed perfection. There are no mistakes. As the various characters explain the Bakanovsky process, we learn that women voluntarily offer their ovaries for egg harvesting for the good of society. They are compensated with a six-month bonus. The process proceeds along several models. There is the one-of-a-kind embryo produced for the highest castes, the alphas and the betas. The lower castes are mass-produced through the Bakanovsky process. Huxley suggests a kind of super-cloning technique where as many as 96 identical embryos are produced. All the embryos, who later become fetuses, are bathed in chemicals to bring out the correct traits. The chemical condition before decanting, because the word birth is not sanity, continues afterwards through hypnopedia. Continual repetition beginning at the toddler age reinforces each child's desires to conform precisely to the role appointed his or her caste. Only 30% of the females are allowed to develop normally. The rest are sterilized. Their infertile state reflects the progress that, quote, has brought us out of the realm of slavery to nature, the director proudly proclaims. Indeed, sex is completely severed from procreation. Sex is for pleasure. Sex is with everyone. Sex is for social stability by ensuring that no one becomes uniquely attached to someone else. Today, we have severed sex from marriage and marriage from procreation. Sex is an expression of personal preference, power, or pleasure. Procreation of children in the natural way is still the ideal. But for those who spend their fertile years on pleasure, reproduction is possible through ART, through baby making. Let's take a quick tour through the primary ART methods. The oldest is also the lowest tech. Artificial insemination by husband, or AIH, involves the collection of sperm, you figured it out, and transfer to the uterus for fertilization and implantation. A line could have been drawn here. But this narrow use expanded to include AID, or artificial insemination, by donor, using donor sperm, usually from an anonymous donor, but not always. Female infertility can be treated with medication. There is a variety of drugs that have different mechanisms of action to cause the female to produce eggs. Or surgical procedures may be used to remove tissue, reverse a prior sterilization, or open a blocked fallopian tube. If medication and surgery do not work, the couple may attempt, attempt in vitro fertilization. The woman must take chemical hormones to cause her ovaries to release more eggs than normal. The mature eggs are harvested through a laparoscopic procedure. Then, the male sperm must be retrieved in the old-fashioned way. They are mixed with eggs in a petri dish, and the hope is that several eggs will fertilize. From one to six days later, one or more of the embryos is transferred to the woman's uterus where implantation may occur. If sperm does not successfully penetrate and fertilize the egg, sperm can be injected directly into the egg via ICSI, or intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Where a woman is not able to carry a pregnancy, the couple may seek a gestational surrogate. A surrogate can be altruistic, that is, she's not doing it for the money. She usually decides to help a family member or friend. One vivid recent example is Jackie Dallenberg, who gave birth to her triplet granddaughters. Surrogates can also be commercial, that is, they receive some compensation. 
Now, because of legal and cultural barriers against baby selling, the arrangements are usually structured as payments for her medical care and delivery, plus compensation for her time and suffering. In both altruistic and commercial gestational surrogacy, the woman is the biological mother of the baby or babies she gestates. In some cases, she may be the genetic mother as well, agreeing to have her own eggs inseminated with the sperm of the contracting male partner. This is becoming less and less common as women tended to get attached to babies who share 50% of their DNA. Most of these methods involve at least one third party, such as a doctor. Some of those ART methods inevitably involve third party gametes, and I'll say more about that later. So how did we get here? Let's take a legal and cultural review. We must take the time to stop and reflect on where we are. That was precisely what the resident world controller, Mustafa Mann, did not want to happen in the Brave New World when he intones, mindless pleasure, love without emotion, supreme serenity, and best of all, there is no time to think. The story in law, policy, and culture began with two Supreme Court cases, Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965 and Eisenstadt v. Baird in 1972. In Griswold, the Supreme Court struck down a rarely ever enforced Connecticut law prohibiting the distribution advice about or use of contraceptives, even by married couples. The court questioned, would we allow the police to search the sacred precincts of the marital bedrooms with the telltale signs of the use of contraceptives? The law violated the marital right of privacy. See the right of marital privacy. A line could have been drawn here, but it did not hold. This was the era of hippies, free love, and the birth control bill. In 1972, the court did an, an about-face on its statement about marital privacy. It ruled that, quote, if the right of privacy means anything, it means the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as a decision whether to bear or be dead to a child. It was but a short step from the right to use birth control to prevent a pregnancy to the right to abortion to end a pregnancy. Just one year later, in Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court concluded that the woman's constitutional right of privacy encompasses a right to terminate her unwanted pregnancy. When read with Doe versus Bolton, the other case decided the same day as Roe, as the court explicitly directed, read together, the privacy right was essentially a right to abortion throughout pregnancy for virtually any reason. The right not to continue a pregnancy implies the right to control not just the spacing and timing, but also the fate of one's own offspring. An important feature of the parent-child bond was fractured. Just five years after Roe, the first test tube baby was born. Louise Brown, born in 1978, was produced from her mother's and father's gametes that were mixed via IVF. The embryo was placed in Leslie Brown's uterus below her black fallopian tube. The world celebrated Louise's seemingly miraculous birth. What was perhaps less well-known was the price of her birth. Over 80 embryos were created and transferred into wombs, and all of them died. Happiness must be paid for, Mustafa Mann reminds us in the conclusion of Brave New World. Leslie John Brown's happiness was paid for with research that did no good at all for at least 80 children. 
Good and noble goals sometimes have a high price. The question we should all be asking is whether that price was worth paying. In another significant development, researchers figured out how to cryopreserve or freeze human embryos. This meant that when an abundance of harvested eggs produced excess embryos, they could be frozen for future use. Another technological hurdle overcome. Another line crossed. The first birth of a frozen embryo occurred in 1983. So now, we have involved anonymous men to donate sperm, technicians to harvest and inspect eggs, fertilize and inspect embryos, and doctors to transfer embryos into wombs. People did not draw the line at providing material or technical assistance. After all, they reasoned, women who were infertile due to blocked tubes could have their tubes unblocked or bypassed. What about the woman with an inhospitable womb? Should she be barred from parenthood? Enter the case of Baby M, born in 1986 to Mary Beth Whitehead. Mrs. Whitehead was inseminated with sperm from William Stern. William Stern's wife, Elizabeth, was not infertile. She had multiple sclerosis and didn't want to incur the health risk of pregnancy. So, the Stearns commissioned Mary Beth Whitehead to be their gestational surrogate. Problems arose, but Mary Beth became attached to her baby and refused to give up baby M. A legal battle naturally ensued. Just who was baby M's real mother, anyhow? In a Solomonic decision, the New Jersey Supreme Court declared payment of money to a surrogate mother is illegal, perhaps criminal and potentially degrading to women. But the court also awarded custody to Mr. Stern and visitation rights to Mrs. Whitehead. When she turned 18, baby M, now Melissa, terminated Mary Beth Whitehead's parental rights, and Elizabeth Stern adopted her. The baby M case was an illustration of too many parents. The next legal battle was over too few. The custody battle over frozen embryos was fought in 1992 in Davis versus Davis. Mary Sue and Junior Davis tried to have children via IVF without success. Before the final attempt, Mary Sue's doctor became aware of freezing and froze the embryos that were not transferred to her womb. The attempt failed, and so did the marriage. Mary Sue couldn't save her marriage, but she wanted to save her children by donating the embryos to someone else. Junior opposed the idea. They went to court, and Junior Davis won. The Tennessee Supreme Court balanced Mary Sue's interest in donation against Junior's interest in avoiding parenthood. The embryo's interests were not relevant. The court wrote, Refusal to permit donation of the pre-embryos would impose on her, meaning Mary Sue, the burden of knowing that the lengthy IVF procedures she underwent were futile, and that the pre-embryos to which she contributed genetic material would never become children. But if she were allowed to donate these pre-embryos, he would face the lifetime of either wondering about his parental status or knowing about his parental status but having no control over it. Donation, if a child came of it, would rob him twice. His procreational autonomy would be defeated, and his relationship with his offspring would be prohibited. Davis v. Davis didn't stop or even slow down the freezing of embryos. No one has kept good track, but within 15 years, an estimated one-half million embryos reside in liquid nitrogen tanks at various clinics around the United States. And now the cultural revision is complete. From diaphragms for married couples, to abortion, to paid surrogates, to frozen embryos, 
Every legal line that was drawn was moved. In less than one generation, we evolved from demanding sex without children to children without sex. In 1972, Paul Ramsey predicted the trajectory of assisted reproduction six years before IVF succeeded. He foresaw that ART would be less likely to treat and remedy a medical problem than to provide the desired product by other means. Those other means included donor sperm, creating a curious kind of social myopia. Gilbert Mylander has written poignantly about this twist of events. When we turn procreation into reproduction, disaggregating its parts, we create difficulties for ourselves that we do not always want to acknowledge. The man who fathers a child because of a one-night stand will be held legally responsible to support that child throughout his minority. But if a college student visits the local sperm bank twice a week for a year, produces a dozen children and pockets thousands of dollars, he can whistle his way back to econ class. No pairs, no worries. Thus, K. Hunwood's notes. By going to a sperm bank, women are unwittingly paying men to be exactly what they object to. End quote. The irony here would be funny if it did not reflect our serious moral predicament. It is almost as if modern reproductive technology allows us to realize our deepest desires and wants without any moral strings attached. Of course, we are deceiving ourselves, but does anyone even care? And Ramsey wondered, if medicine makes this turn to doctoring desires, then, quote, is there any reason for doctors to be reluctant to accede to parents' desire to have a girl rather than a boy, blonde hair rather than brown, a genius rather than a lout, a Horowitz in the family rather than a Tom deaf child, or alternatively, a child who, because of his idiosyncrasies, would have a good career as a freak in the circus? This sounds a lot like a scenario at the Eighth Day Center in Gadda. Before moving from the legal and cultural shift to what was happening in the church, Let's stop and examine what is known about the consequences of ART, particularly IVF. It has impacted women's health, pregnancies, the child's health, and psychological and sociological repercussions. The woman may incur risks of injury and infection from the procedure itself. She also may have long-term risks from the fertility drugs and a possibly increased risk of breast cancer. She may experience ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which can be serious and is incurable. One recent study from the Netherlands suggests that the risk of death during AR treatment is underreported worldwide. There is a possible increased risk of ovarian cancer, but the time frames of the cancers to have emerged is far too short, and adequate studies have not been done. The most commonly used drugs are not even FDA approved for this purpose. Lupron, a popular one, is designed for prostate cancer. Risks to women's health have not been assessed. After years of ART, we know less about its risks than we do about the risk of being crushed by a soda machine. The mother may also have a riskier pregnancy. With IVF, there's a higher risk of multiples and twinning. Now, the risk of multiples is reduced with ESET, which is elective single embryo transfer. But it's unknown whether ESET reduces the higher risk of twinning. IVF is also associated with a higher risk of premature birth, sometimes with multiples, but not always, and low birth weight. How about the child? The child is already at a higher risk of prematurity and low birth weight. Prematurity has been associated with a higher incidence of complications and birth defects. Baby is also more likely to be a twin or triplet. There have 
reports of a possible risk of genetic malformation, but no prospective studies have been done. The New York Times reports the possibility of genetic defects listing, including a hole between the two chambers of the heart, a cleft lip or palate, an improperly developed esophagus, and a malformed rectum. There are additional risks if donor gametes are used. Genetic disease may have been passed on by the sperm donor. Most donors are anonymous, so there's no way to confirm or track the disease. This can have tragic consequences. Four families in one part of Michigan had five children with the same rare disease, a disease that only occurs one in five million times. All went to the same sperm bank and all used the same sperm donor. Even if the donor wants to communicate health information, it is nearly impossible. No regulations require this kind of record keeping. A few years ago, a Chicago mother tried to contact families who had used her college daughter's eggs. Shortly after donation, her daughter died of colon cancer. And this would have been important information for her genetic offspring to know. And the implications for society. The medical costs of multiples and premature births are high. And schools must be arranged to accommodate classes and to avoid having twins in the same class. The use of donor egg, sperm, and surrogates has generated a social rearrangement of the meaning of family. A child can be produced with upwards of five parents. An infertile couple may commission the creation of an embryo with donor egg and donor sperm. Or if the woman doesn't have good cytoplasm in her own eggs, she can use a donor egg for that while she supplies the rest of the cell with cellular material and DNA. The embryo may be gestated in the womb of a sixth person. If they create multiple embryos and then freeze some, the resulting embryos may be donated to yet another couple who could in turn pay their surrogate. If the arrangement breaks down anywhere along the way, who is the real parent? Unlike Brave New World, parent, mother, and father are not smut. However, those names don't stand on their own anymore. The adults involved in the child's creation may be called genetic parent, commissioning couple, Contracting parent, intended parent, social parent, gestational parent, biological parent. Sometimes couples who have used IVF plus freezing find that they're like the old woman in the shoe who had so many embryos she didn't know what to do. Some choose to relinquish them to another couple to gestate and raise through an arrangement called embryo donation and adoption. Thus, the child could have full genetic siblings whose lives started on the same day, and yet have birthdays years apart and live with another family. Psychologists are beginning to express concern about these social rearrangements of the family. The use of third-party gametes severs the connection between marriage, sexual intercourse, and procreation. Lines of kinship are blurred and confused when a third party intrudes to the appropriate relationship. When these children grow up, they may have a different view of how well the adults' decisions worked out for them. A question we need to ask of ourselves in our society has not been satisfactorily answered. Is this in the best interest of children to be conceived and gestated this way? The availability, the availability of ART opens the door to the possibility that the embryos are used as a means to achieve parental goals, not for their own sake. There is a strong drive to have a child of my own. It's a powerful biological drive, and it is good and necessary for our continuity with the past and our sacrifice for our children and future generations. But it can lead us down a path 
dehumanizing human embryos. Listen to the language we use. Spare embryos. Leftover embryos. Grade A eggs. Defective embryos. They sound like products, not children. Regardless of the intent of any specific couple, the cumulative effect of ART is the commodification of children. In fact, market values apply. Quality egg donors, the Ivy League co-ed with high SAT scores, blonde hair, blue eyes, mathematical and musical skills, and good health command a much higher price than the immigrant who spent her days taking care of someone else's children. Her eggs might be used for research where they are just a shell for inserting DNA. Let me tell you a very short story. Designer children. Begin with two loving parents of a child with a rare incurable disease that can only be treated with a bone marrow transplant. Determine that parents and family are incompatible donors. Search for suitable donors. Find none. Agree to have another baby to create a perfect match sibling. Fertilize eggs. Of the 24 healthy embryos, test for compatibility. Find five embryos that match. Successfully implant one. Discard the rest, including the 19 healthy ones that didn't match. Rejoice at the birth of a bouncing baby boy whose bone marrow saves his sister. See the happy family. The end. Now you may recognize the story of the creation of Adam Nash, whose sister Molly was born with Fanconi's anemia. Adam was specifically created as a savior sibling, an involuntary donor to save his sister. We can celebrate Molly's restoration of health while lamenting the means used to achieve it. IVF can also be used to have a child of the right sex. In many cultures, that sex is male. Let me tell you another story. A couple in India employed ART. She was 57, and he was 72. She gave birth to twin girls and abandoned them. Their only goal was to produce a son. At least she didn't abort or kill them after they were born. How about ART from child's perspective? We have had longer experience with sperm donors than with egg donors, and many of their offspring have reached adulthood. Some of them aren't quite as happy as the pictures on the sperm donation websites would lead you to believe. I found out my biological father was a vial of frozen sperm labeled C11 when I was 21. This person, this person published their story on the Anonymous Us website. We'll call them Colby. Elizabeth Markbart, who published the 2010 study, My Daddy's Name is Donor, concludes, Our culture needs a serious debate about the implications of technologies used to form many of today's alternative families, one that places the interests of the resulting children front and center. Right now, this debate is dominated by talk of adults' rights, the rights of same-sex couples, the rights of infertile adults, the rights of singles who wish to have a child. Our culture also needs to face up to the importance of mothers and fathers in our children's lives. We cannot assume that they easily forget about those biological parents on the margins just because the adults in their lives want them to. Mark Bart is referring to damning donors when she writes of those biological parents on the margins. Keep that in mind as you hear the rest of Colby's story. I couldn't relate to my story. I am a human being, yet I was conceived with a technique that had its origins in animal husbandry. Worst of all, farmers kept better records of their cow's genealogy 
then assisted reproductive clinics had kept for the donor-conceived people of my era. It also made me feel strange to think that my genes were spliced together from two people who were never in love, never danced together, had never even met one another. At the time, these thoughts were incoherent, but I believe they basically boiled down to this. One, how could my own parents decide to deliberately separate me from my kin, to grow up half-blinded to my own identity? If they couldn't face telling me the truth about what they had done, why would they do it? Two, how could the doctors sworn to first do no harm create the system where I now face the pain and loss of my own identity and heritage? Three, how could the government charged with protecting the most vulnerable members of the community, its children, legislate to make it illegal for me to know the identity of my biological father? How can its institutions subject me to the psychological torture of knowing that records exist, but I am forbidden to know the contents? Four, how could my donor help create me and then abandon me without even leaving his name? For me, the hardest thing about being donor-conceived was the powerlessness and lack of choice, being constantly reminded that I must abide by decisions made long ago. Hang on a minute, I never agreed to any of this. The adult's autonomy and choice is highly protected in law. The embryos they produce have no protection until birth, and limited choice when it comes to uncovering their genetic heritage, and I believe this story came from the UK. It's ironic that in this age of genetic determinism of our genes being responsible for everything, that some of us are denied knowledge about half of our genetic makeup. That was part one of Baby Making, The Fractured Fulfillment of Huxley's Brave New World by Paige Comstock Cunningham, JD, MA. Ms. Cunningham is the executive director for the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and an affiliate professor of bioethics for Trinity Graduate School. A print adaptation of this lecture with references is available on our website at www.cbhd.org.